0: Welcome to the podcast, The Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Logan campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation and our world. We're starting a... uh, No, we actually have started, but we're in a series at the moment uh, called Who We Are. We're just looking over these five weeks at our core values as a church And I want to uh, talk about one of our values this morning, the value of ones. And I want to do it by uh, talking about four parables that Jesus tells. But just so, in case you're worried that we're going to be here uh, until 5 o'clock this afternoon, I'm going to do the first three parables really quick. And I'm going to spend most of the time in just just one parable as we look at this value, the value of ones. Who here remembers having pocketfuls of these? One-cent pieces... Who can remember the uh, animal on the back? Who remembers? Not, not an echidna, I think that's on the two. Possum, do you know what type of possum, David? Uh, no, it's a sugar glider, but close. It's a, uh, it's a sugar glider uh, on the back. You know, back in the day, uh, for all of those that are old like me, uh, back in the day, we uh, would have uh, walked into McDonald's and with a $2 note and bought a uh, Big Mac for $1.99 and used to get one of these and you put it in your pocket as change and then you'd walk next door and you'd buy a big black CD, remember them? And uh, you'd hand over your $20 uh, for nineteen ninety nine. you'd get one of these, everything cost 19 So every, everything ended in 99, you ended up with pocketfuls of these but in 1991 the Australian government decided that these had no value. They weren't worth the effort. They didn't have enough value. When you hand over a 20 for something that's worth $19.99, you deserve one of these. You do. They're actually still legal tender. You you deserve one of these, but you don't expect it. You don't care that you don't get it because it has so little value. It's just not worth the effort. You see, the value as the value of something rises, so does the effort we will go to to get it. Let me, simple illustration. Some of you have seen it before, but uh, for those of you that haven't, let's let's see it again. I want you to think honestly about this. You're driving down the Pacific Motorway tomorrow morning, seven o'clock, cars everywhere, and everyone's trying to get to work, and you see some money on the side of the road. But to get it, you've got to go to some effort. You've got to pull your car over 100 metres further than where you saw it by the time it takes you to break. You've got to take off your seatbelt. You've got to open your door. You've got to uh, run back down the motorway while everyone's screaming abuse at you. You've got to pick the money up. You've got to run back into your car, close your door, put your seatbelt back on, try and pull back out into traffic and get to where you're going. All right, think about, would you go to all of that effort if you saw five cents on the side of the road? Put your hand up. Okay, would you go to that effort if you saw 10 cents on the side of the road? Okay, I've got a mate who stopped a 10-ton truck when he was moving house and I was behind him, pulled up traffic to pick up 10 cents on the side of the road. It's not normal. All of you are a bit more normal. 20 cents, who's stopping for 20 cents? John O. Buchanan is tempted, I can see it. <laughs> Any, anyone stopping uh, for, for 20 cents? No? Okay, who's going to that effort for a dollar? Anyone for a dollar? Oh, there's a couple of young people just starting to get tempted. They're thinking I can get half a cheeseburger for a dollar. You know who? Who actually needs to see something that's made of paper? Who, if you saw five bucks on the side of the road, you'd go to that effort? Jordan would. I've uh, I've seen him scavenge food at Gateway many many times. He would go to that effort for five dollars. A bunch of young people would too. Who needs to see a ten? Okay. All of the rest of the young people uh, in the congregation have done it for a 10. Who's not going to that effort until they see a 20? Okay, a couple more people. Yeah, Miranda's going for 20. Fair enough. Jay doesn't give her much pocket money. Uh, Who needs a 50? Okay, everyone, just a bit, or half the congregation. Who's waiting for a hunch before they... Okay, all of you, with your hands up. Come and see me later. I want to know your investment strategies. You've got too much, (laughs) far too much money. Thank you, Jordan. That would be lovely. Clean it up. Someone just watch him. Um, It's true. Simple illustration. But when something has greater value to us, we'll go to greater effort. And so in 1991, the Australian government said these had so little value, they're not worth the effort. But in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three parables. I'm going to tell these ones really quick. Jesus tells three parables to say, ones actually have great value to me. He tells a parable of one lost coin, one lost sheep, and one lost son. And, and those, those parables, and, and remember, whenever God says one thing three times, it's really important. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He tells the same story three times to make one point. One lost person, one hurting person, one vulnerable person, one lonely person has so much value to the king of heaven that he notices when they're missing, that an all-out search is called for until they are found. That one lost, lonely, hurting person actually becomes the priority of all of heaven. And when that one lost, hurting, lonely person is found, all of heaven celebrates. Jesus says time and time again in Luke chapter 15 that when one lost person repents, when one lost person turns to God, when one lost person is found, all of heaven, all the angels of heaven, stop and celebrate because one lost, hurting, lonely person has great value to God, the value of ones. Our value as a church family is based on that chapter. But I actually want to talk about this value from a different parable today, from uh, Luke chapter 10. And it's probably one of Jesus' most well-known parables. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's actually so well-known that even in our culture that has nothing to do with church today, it's still become part of our vocabulary. But we still know what a good Samaritan is. A good Samaritan is someone who goes the extra mile, who goes to great effort to love their neighbours, to help someone in need. But when Jesus told this parable in Luke chapter 10, he actually got in a lot of trouble. He got in a lot of trouble with the religious people of the time who actually didn't think that lost, lonely and hurting people had value to God. If you got your Bible, just turn to Luke chapter 10 and uh, verse 25. It says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a good question. We should all ask that question. If there's life beyond the grave... We, we should want to know, you know, how we get there, how do we in, inherit eternal life? But what we see in this parable is that this guy's trying to test Jesus. He, he's thinking, if, if I know the law better than Jesus knows the law, then Jesus is a fraud. And he's been exposed as a fraud. And Jesus is kind of pretty smart and... Uh, almost a little bit of a politician in this moment instead of answering the question he asks another question he says what is written in the law he replied how do you read it and this is what this expert in the law answered he said love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself it's exactly the way Jesus answered that question and at another time in his ministry, when Jesus asked the question, What are the most two important laws? You know, what, what is life all about? What's the priority of life? He gives the exact same answer. He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor in the same way. You know, when Jesus asked for the greatest commandment, he says, I can't give you one, but I can give you two. One's more important than the other, but one flows directly out of the other. They can't be separated. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. You can't pull them apart. What When Jesus was asked the question, what he was saying is, you can't love God and not love people. And he's also saying you, you can't love people with the same you know unconditional love and forgiveness that God loves you unless you know the love of God. That's why he says these two commands can't be separated. They go together, one flows out of the other. And Jesus says to this guy who answered the exact same way that uh, Jesus himself answered, he says, you've answered correctly, top of the class, A plus, you know, skip to the next level. This is exactly the right answer. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Listen to what he says next. But this expert in the law, verse 29, he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked, who is my neighbour? Ever wanted to justify yourself? starts at a very early age. You know, there's something that we know we should have done but we haven't done it. And so we justify ourselves. You know, when we went to school, you know, we used to make excuses why we hadn't done our homework. The dog ate my homework. Or well, my sister duct taped me to the bed. Or when, when I was in, in year 11 and started driving to school, we had to say why we were late for school. And we came up with a better excuse, you know, every every day. I'll never forget, I rolled in at 9.17 one morning and Anne Dunn had got in at 9.16 and she was only one line, you had to write something small but she wrote, I'm sorry I'm late, my pet died it's not that I'm sentimental or anything but it takes a jolly long time to bury an elephant and I thought, I can't beat that these days kids know nothing about justifying themselves for not going to school the government sticks their head out the window and sees a few clouds in the sky and just calls school off I mean, I prayed for that, (laughs) for 15 years, God never answered my prayer. In grade three, we had one bomb scare and we got to go out on uh, on the field and play footy for half a day. Every time I hadn't studied for a test for the next nine years, I prayed for another bomb scare. It never happened. Kids these days, you only go to school every second day. But, you know, as we get older, as we get older, we actually keep finding ways to justify ourselves when we haven't done what we know we should have done. You know, maybe we justify ourselves why we haven't loved that person at work, why we haven't forgiven that person in our family, why we haven't loved our wives the way that Christ loves us. That might just be my list, but maybe your list too. And we justify ourselves. We say, I'm tired, I'm busy, I'm stressed. They don't deserve it. I've got too much going on at the moment. We justify ourselves. And this is what this expert in the law is trying to do. He says, as he's trying to justify himself by saying, who is my neighbour? You see, you need to understand a little bit of the context of this really famous parable. At the time, Jesus and the expert in the law knew that there was a significant debate going on amongst the rabbis. They knew that love your neighbour was actually in the Old Testament law. In Leviticus it says this, do not hate your brother in your heart. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. And so the expert in the law, he wants to find out Who do I have to love? Do I have to love nice people or do I have to love people that aren't so nice to me? Do I have to love people that are like me or do I have to even love people that aren't like me? Because that's the debate that's going on amongst the rabbis. There's a whole bunch of rabbis who read that and said, well, obviously your neighbour is someone who is a fellow Jew, someone who is a fellow Israeli, you know, someone who is uh, in your family because they're in the text. Your family's in the text and and others that are like you are in the text. So that's obvious. You've got to love them. Everybody agreed on that. But then there was a debate going on about do you have to love people who've come from another country, another nation, and have become part of our religion? Do we have to love them? They're not quite like us. And some rabbis said, yes, you do. You've got to like them. And other rabbis says, no. They're not our neighbours. We don't have to love them. But what every rabbi of the time agreed on was that you didn't have to love sinners and you certainly didn't have to love heretics like Samaritans. You didn't have to love them. That's not what it meant to love your neighbour. And so this expert in the law He wants to find out where Jesus stands on this. And so Jesus tells him this story that's probably become one of his most well-known stories and well-liked stories. But as I said, Jesus got in a lot of trouble for telling this story. It says this, says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him and went away, leaving him Half dead. This uh, man's walking from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a 25 kilometre uh, long road and it kind of uh, goes down uh, through the valley and there's all rocks and, and hidden clefts on the mountains you know, beside the road. Perfect place for robbers to, to sit and wait in ambush. When you're going down that road, you didn't go down by yourself. You went down there by yourself, you were kind of asking for trouble, and this guy got trouble. He was beaten up, stripped of half his clothes, and he's left on the side of the road, half dead. There's moments like these, you can't get out of it on your own. You need someone else to help. Now we all have some moments like this. We we had a moment like this years ago up in Cape York when we uh, drove through this, uh, this creek. This might be a photo on the screen, Jake. Drove through that creek. Felt like a whole lot of fun at the time. But uh, turned out that I actually pushed my, uh, uh, the fan into the radiator, gouged a big hole out of it, and water just kept leaking out of my radiator. About an hour later, I realised and I'm standing in the middle of the bush uh, trying to fill up my radiator. There's nobody else around to help us. This was a moment of need. We needed some help and no one was there. Eventually a guy came along on a motorbike and said, uh, sometimes I've heard if you put a tea bag in your radiator, it'll clog up the hole and it'll hold some water and you'll be able to keep driving. I was so excited to hear it. I think I put about six bags of bushels in there, just kind of loading it up uh, with tea, filled it with water, drove off and kind of thought it was working, a while until about two hours later, we're once again alone on the side of the road. Car overheated, stopped. And what I realized at that point was two hours ago, when I got the tea bags out of the back of our camper trailer, in my excitement, I forgot to put the tailgate back up on our camper trailer. And as we're going down, it's funny, isn't it, David? Funny for you, but uh. wasn't funny for us at the time. (laughs) We were going in and out of creeks and we found out two hours later everything had slid out the back. Everything. All our clothes, all our food, everything we owned was gone. And we're sitting on the side of the road with four crying children, one crying wife and I think there might have been a tear in my eye. We're in a moment of need. We weren't going to get out of it on our own. And some good Samaritans came along. They didn't look like good Samaritans, but uh, these, uh, these people drove halfway through the night back down those tracks, across those creeks, picked up all of our stuff and carried it back to us at midnight. They were good Samaritans. They went the extra mile. They made the extra effort to help us in our moment of absolute need. We weren't getting out of it ourselves. And that's kind of a fun story to tell because we were just you know, driving through the bush for fun. But we have some moments like that in our lives. Moments when relationships fall apart. Moments of, of grief and we lose loved ones. Moments when we just got uncontrolled panic attacks and anxiety attacks. Moments when our business is collapsing and we just don't know what to do, we don't know where to turn and we need some people to gather around us and to help us in our moment of need. I tell you, I, I watched that happen here in this campus, I think probably better than any other campus in our church. You guys do that really well. I, I just want to encourage you In the way that you get around people and care for people and i also want to encourage you it's more powerful than what you think there are people out there that don't have that experience that don't have a community that gets around them and loves them and i'd say right now you know as we're coming out of you know the pressure cooker of COVID, as people are you know still mopping up their houses we've got an opportunity to to love people in our community, to invite people in to caring community, to actually see that there are people who want to walk alongside you and help you in your time of need. We're never supposed to live independently. We're actually supposed to carry one another's burdens, to walk alongside one another. And what it's going to take, and and I kind of say this particularly to blokes all the time, it actually takes being authentic and letting people see that you've got some burdens that you need carried. And as you do that, other people will see this is a safe place for people to carry my burdens. That's what it means to love our neighbour. There's a brilliant story that Jesus tells because the people who are going to come along can't tell whether the guy lying on the side of the road is a Jew or a Gentile because he's been stripped of his clothes. And they used to dress differently. And they can't tell whether he's dead or alive. It says he's half dead. They're not sure whether it would be going to touch a corpse or going to help someone in need. And as you'll see in this story, that made it very, very inconvenient to help this person in need. This is what it says, it says a priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man he passed by on the other side. Now we need to understand this road is not like the motorway. You know, you haven't got five lanes either way on the motorway. You've got to swerve across five lanes to squash a cane toad or a cat, uh, I mean a rat, anyone here love cats? Okay, definitely rats. All right, you got to swerve across lanes to run over, you know, a, a, a rat. But on this road, it's so skinny. You actually had to swerve to avoid this guy lying on the side of the road. And that's what the priest does because the priest can't tell if he's a Jew or a Gentile. He can't tell if he's dead or alive. And if he is a Gentile or if he is dead, there's a great cost. It's very inconvenient because of his role in the temple. He, He would have had to, if he touched a dead body or if he touched a Gentile, he would have had to spend seven days out in the camp with the rest of the sinners away from home, away from the temple very embarrassing for a priest and he would have had to buy a red heifer I won't go into all the details of that but it was in the Old Testament law buy a spotless red heifer to offer as a sacrifice I looked up on eBay this week it's about $1,300 for a red heifer the point is this it was costly and inconvenient to help a person in need and so he walks away from the need and then it goes on. It says, "So to a Levite, exactly the same problem. It's costly and inconvenient because he's a helper in the temple with the priest. Saw him pass by on the other side. We all make excuses why we can't help someone in need. It's inconvenient. It's inconvenient preaching on this passage, I tell you. I uh, drove out my driveway uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I was preparing this message." And my neighbour's bin was overflowing. They hadn't squashed it down properly and the crows had got into it and there's rubbish all over the road. And I'm looking at it and I'm going, it's not my problem, I packed my bin well. It's, uh, it's their problem. And I'm running late for work already. And then I remembered, I'd just been reading this passage that morning. What does a good Samaritan do? Pays the cost. And he's willing take on inconvenience. So I had to stop and pick up my neighbour's rubbish. It's inconvenient. I was a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, I was running along the beach and I saw a guy running towards me. I thought he looks weird. And I see I'd seen him come out of the, the surf carrying his kite surfer, but I turned around and I could see his kite about eight hundred meters down the beach. He'd come to grief out in the surf. And as he's running towards me, he looks like he's wearing a black skirt. But as he gets past me, I realise when he lost his kite out in the surf, he also lost his shorts. And he's running towards me and he's got, he's got his uh, black wetsuit shirt tied around his waist and it's covering his front, but not his back. I saw the need. Shorts. And trust me, I wanted to avoid the need. But I remembered this passage and I ran back to the place where I was staying I got a pair of shorts, ran all the way back down the beach. I said, mate, do you need these? He wanted to hug me. I said, don't hug me. I'm a Baptist pastor, it wouldn't look good. Just put the shorts on and off you go. It's inconvenient to help people in need. We can come up with all sorts of excuses why we can avoid People in need. Why we can avoid helping people in need? And this story that Jesus tells once again—it's a brilliant story—and it, and it kind of follows the the story of threes. You know, there's one guy comes along, two guys, second guy comes along. You kind of expected both of them would be the person to help in need. And, and everyone there is thinking the third person is going to be the common man. It's going to be just the ordinary Israelite, the ordinary Jew in the street. He's going to be the common man. He's going to be the hero of the story and then Jesus shocks the pants off them says this a samaritan as he travelled came where the man was and when he saw him he took pity on him and when he went to him and ban- he went to him and bandaged his wounds pouring on oil and wine then he put the man on his own donkey brought him to an inn and he took care of him next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper look after him he said and when i return i'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. This was not what they were expecting. You see, we the good Samaritans become part of our vernacular. Everybody knows what a good Samaritan is. It started with Jesus. He's the first person to ever put those two words together. They'd never come together before this. You see, the, the, the people of Israel hated the Samaritans. They were heretics. If there was anyone they didn't have to love as their neighbours, it was Samaritans. You don't have to love them. And the Samaritan becomes a hero of the story. The Samaritan sees the need, doesn't avoid the need, but he actually moves toward the need to serve the need. This is gut-wrenching for those that are listening. That Jesus could tell a story and the Samaritan's a hero of the story. This is what was said about Samaritans at the time. The Israelite who eats the bread of the Samaritans that sits at the table of a Samaritan or consumes food that comes from the Samaritans is like him who eats the flesh of swine, which was not good. You weren't allowed to have a bacon sandwich if you were a good Jewish boy. This was not good. It was an insult to God to spend time with a Samaritan. And then Jesus says these words, he says, which of these three was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? this story really hurts. The expert in the law, you notice he can't even say his name. Can't even say the word Samaritan. He says, I guess the one who showed mercy to those in need. The one who had mercy on him. You see, the expert wanted neighbour defined to justify not loving people that were different to him. Not loving people that were like him. He wanted a reason not to have to love them. And Jesus, once again, just like he did in Luke 15, he does it once again in Luke chapter 10. He says, every single one has value to God. Everyone that is in need, every lost, lonely and hurting person is valuable to God. Everyone is valuable to God and is worth the effort. And Jesus goes further than just defining who our neighbour is. He doesn't just say your neighbour, you know, is those like you. He says your neighbour is, is everybody you see in need. But he actually goes to define what it looks like to love your neighbour. He says this, go and do likewise. Go and be a good Samaritan. Now, this is a, Let me make it really simple. Priest sees the need, swerves, avoids the need so he doesn't have to serve the need. Levite sees the need, swerves so he doesn't have to serve the need. but the Samaritan and this is what Jesus says go and do likewise. they saw he saw the exact same need but instead of swerving he moved towards the need and went the extra mile, made every effort to serve the need. Jesus says, go and do likewise. That's why he said these two commandments can't be separated. You can't separate loving God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and loving your neighbour as yourself. You cannot say you love God and not love people in need. And you cannot love people in need the way that Jesus loves us if you don't know the love of God for yourself. That's why... You see, the, the, the closer you get to God, the closer you get to people in need. It's what God's like. You'll find He's already there. That's why I'm really excited about our Neighbours Ministry, a, a ministry that's going to span you know, across all of our campuses. If you've been here for a while, you'll know that our desire, every time we plan a campus, is to have a care ministry, reaching out to those in need in our community, and we've done that. I really believe God's called us to establish this ministry called Neighbours, which will involve people from every campus actually moving towards those who are in need. Getting outside of our four walls with all of the resources that we have already in our care centres and moving towards people in need. You know, there are tens of thousands of people every year seeking asylum in Australia. There are refugees as the borders open back up, there'll be tens of thousands of refugees and migrants moving to Brisbane again. And already there's tens of thousands in need. As a church community, and what this Neighbours Ministry is all about is actually moving towards those in need to serve the need. And so we've been received a grant to set up a big camper van, caravan, trailer kind of uh, deal to actually take many of the resources from our care centres to meet people in need. But, you know, it won't be the resources that actually makes the big difference. It's actually going to be the relationship. It's actually going to be showing love to people practically, but walking alongside people and saying, you're welcome here. We love you. We want to help you. We want to serve you in every, any way that we can. I really want to encourage you. As we get this na- this ministry up off the ground this year, have a chat to Eleanor. Eleanor and Sarah, just stand just for a sec, give us a little wave. Eleanor and Sarah are here with us today. are going to be leading our Neighbours Ministry. They're going to be, see those rack of clothes up the back uh, today? They're going to be there. They're going to be able to talk to you about what Neighbours is going to be like, how it's going to work, how we're going to meet people out in the community and serve the need of people in our community. Love for anyone who's remotely interested. uh, Just to go and have a chat. Find out what it's all about. We've got some information evenings coming up soon. I want to finish really practically today. The last thing I want to do is to make people feel guilty and run around trying to be everything to everyone. If there's anything I want you just to remember from this morning, I think what Jesus is trying to tell us in these parables And our value as a church, the value of ones. What if we all did for one what we wish we could do for everyone? What if we all just did for one what we wish we could do for everyone? We stop making excuses about what we can do, nothing, too busy, too hard, there's too many needs out there. And we all just did for one what we wish we could do for everyone. Communities would be transformed. And there's lots of need out there right now. What if we all just did for one what we wish we could do for everyone? Let me just a couple of really simple things. Firstly, go deep, not wide. The Samaritan goes the extra mile, pays for his room for a few weeks and uh, pours oil and wine on his wounds. Very expensive. He goes the extra mile for this one man. You can't do that for everyone. Significant investment of time and money. But you can do that for Someone. You've got a neighbour in your street. Just look out. Jesus is brilliant at this. He just notices people in need, moves towards the need to serve the need. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Don't feel like you've got to do it for everyone. Go deep with one person. Just notice the one person God wants you to notice. Walk alongside them. Go deep, not wide. There's a neighbour in your street and there's a neighbour in your seat. You, You can't help every person in this church. Probably 200 people here today. You can't help every person. who is it he wants you to notice is why life groups are so important to us at gateway it's been in a small community if you're not in a life group yet this year get in a life group place where you can just look out for one another we can actually do what luke chapter 10 says this is a picture luke chapter 10 the parable of the good samaritan it is a picture of the church mobilized to help and care for one another in need Go deep, not wide. You can't possibly meet the needs and serve the needs of everyone in this room, everyone in that community. But if we all did for one, what we wish we could do for everyone? And we go deep with that person. We could change a community. Go time, not just money. It's actually easy to justify not getting personally involved with people in need by giving our money rather than our time. And I want to thank you for your generosity. Your generosity enables us to, you know, to, to have five campuses and care centres and to see ministries like what Deb's leading, just taking uh, the good news of Jesus in our care centres out to those uh, in need. Thank you for your generosity. But I want to encourage you today, don't get to the end of the year and say, I don't think I actually had an impact on any person in need. But I did give my money to help others do it. Again, you can't help everyone, but just do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Give time. A lot of people just need time. A lot of people won't actually need a food parcel. Some people will. A lot of people just need someone sitting beside them and saying, I love you, I care for you, I'm here for you. Give time, not just money. And lastly, this morning, go long term, not short term. The Samaritan says, I'm going to look after this guy until he's well. I'm going to do whatever it takes, however long it takes. It's not a five-minute mix, uh, five-minute fix. You know, people can spend a long time wrecking their lives in a whole bunch of different ways, and some of us have, have had a long time with somebody else, hurting our lives. Don't think that changes in a minute. Jesus does do miracles, but that healing sometimes takes time. Go long-term, not just short-term. Let me finish with a letter I received at the end of last year that just blew my socks off and just probably tells a story of why it's good to go long-term, not short-term. Probably even those that know me really well in this room wouldn't know that when I was 19 years old and I first put my faith in Jesus, I actually helped the youth pastor at the time run a drop-in centre in a, uh, in a social, a public housing area for, for homeless youth. He was the brains and the heart and the courage behind it and I just turned up to help. I was 19, I put my faith in Jesus. I, uh, I got a letter uh, in the mail. Remember we used to get things, a little stamp on it. I, uh, I got one just the end of last year, just before Christmas. And it says, uh, Jason... Firstly, let me please apologise for the paper I'm writing on. I can't afford a writing pad until next week, but felt compelled to write to you. I'd like to thank you for opening my eyes to Jesus. I found your book, Jesus the Bloke, in the library here at the Townsville Women's Correctional Centre. Now, I wrote it for blokes. and Somehow, my book has turned up in a women's correctional centre in Townsville. I don't know how, and I don't know how she found it to be honest. But she says this, I found a great connection to it, even showing it to a few chaplains that visit here and to some other prisoners. She says, I'm also from the western suburbs of Sydney. That was the only bit I did say about when I was nine. I didn't say what I did, where it was. She says, I'm also from the western suburbs of Sydney, born and raised in Parramatta. Like some of the girls you mentioned in your story, I too was sold into the sex industry at a young age. I was 12 and I went cold turkey from heroin at 15, thanks to a great mother and a family GP, but mostly thanks to a rush that I found that I got from prayer. She said, I met my daughter's father at a church in Tilopia that we would attend for the pastor's wife to feed us, to feed us teens that had no homes and hear relatable stories about Jesus. They were cool. The way that you too sound to be that's a good letter i don't get called cool too often but that's the church i was part of when i was 19 she's got no idea writing this letter that i was there when she was a 14 year old homeless kid and, and that pastor i just told you about who impacted my life so much and, and ran that ministry for, for for homeless kids he taught me how to tell stories about jesus I learned just from watching him. I had no idea I'd spend the rest of my life doing that. And I, I remember going to funerals with him. I remember going to, to juvenile detention with centers with him. Kids that was wrecking their lives as he's pouring his life into these kids. He's just given them, you know, so much grace, serving them in their time of need. Some of them died of heroin overdoses. Some of them ended up in jail for long term. And at times, I know, because I walked closely with him for a number of years, he thought, is it really worth the effort? But he just kept plugging on and plugging on. She goes on to say, Religious history is one of my favourite subjects, but I've done so many things that would not sit favourably with Jesus or God. I fear I'm just not good enough, although I'm always kind. I try to be helpful and polite and encouraging and even charitable. I even gave up half my Christmas day to feed the homeless last year. But even with those qualities, I still find myself a drug user, making poor choices and allowing myself to be susceptible to violent men. I'm now 44 and it's my first time in jail. She says, I try to improve my life and even when I'm successful somewhat, I inevitably fail. She says, your book is giving me new hope. I'm sorry for the tears on the page, but do you really think that Jesus would love someone like me? Do you think that really could be a thing I'm meant to do, a purpose for my life? Will I ever have real self-confidence? How could anyone truly love me or value me? And if a mere human couldn't, why would God or Jesus? I see that you write that he loves everyone. And although I've never taken a life, I've done some really crappy things and sold myself for sex repeatedly. How can I possibly be forgiven? And if I did find a way to be forgiven, what about when I screw up again? There can't be countless chances. I don't deserve them. Thank you for reading my letter. Please pray for me and that I get home to my family soon. Church, can God really love a woman like that? I'm going to ask that one more time, and I want a lot more enthusiasm. Can God really love someone like that? Yes, that's what he's like. God's been chasing her down for 30 years. I remember her as a 14-year-old kid, messed up and broken and God, the light of God just getting into her, her heart and her life a little bit. 30 years later, God has not given up on her. Somehow, she miraculously finds a book written by a bloke who's got no idea how to write a book, but he's written it for blokes, and it's in a women's jail in the northern parts of our state. he has got no idea how it got there. God is chasing her down. God's hand is on her life, I want to encourage you today, don't give up when it looks like serving people in need is not making a difference in an instant, don't give up because you know who the perfect good Samaritan is, the ultimate good Samaritan, who's Jesus, who didn't give up on you, when when it looked like you're a no-hoper and you're never going to get your crap together, Jesus went to the cross for you, and He died in your place, so that you could be forgiven. He went the extra mile for you because you were worth the effort, even though we keep stuffing up time and time again. So I encourage the church: maybe you've got a family member, maybe you've got a neighbour, maybe you've got someone in need. There's a little like Sky who wrote me that letter. God puts them on your heart. Don't give up, because He won't give up on them. Go deep, not wide. Give time, not just money. And go long-term, not short-term. And we might just see a community transformed by the love and the power of Jesus. We hope you've been blessed by this message.